I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. This week, we're revisiting a topic that we've done a podcast about before. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about violence and uh, a little bit more about what that means. If you're, like, tired of hearing about violence, sorry, it's an important idea that we should figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But before that, we have some announcements. First announcement, uh, I'm going to teach a really neat class at ICS, and it's online, and it is very cheap, and you can and should take it. Um, we got kind of a special deal where ICS is going to offer the class for $90 Canadian, which is like $2 American, and uh, anybody can take it. Um, there's going to be some registration stuff up on their website soon, but I thought I'd pitch it here because a lot of the materials are definitely of interest to folks listening to the Magnificast. Um, some of the stuff we've talked about, in fact, on this uh this podcast before some of it we haven't um but the class is called organized religion christianity and anti-capitalism in the u.s and canada so if you're interested in that at all um you can go ahead and check that out pretty soon the syllabus will be posted uh we're gonna do some some getting to know each other getting to know the history of christianity and how christians have resisted capitalism um in these two countries and going from the Haymarket riots and rebellion all the way through to Occupy and uh, Black Lives Matter and some other kind of more recent uh, phenomena. So if you are interested in that or you want more information, get at me. I'm super excited that I get to teach it and finally get to actually say something about it. I've been sitting on this knowledge for a long, long time. It finally cleared the hurdle today. So I hope to see a bunch of people there. Sign up for the Magnific class. <laughs> that is it. The Magnific class. Uh, you can't get a cheaper, cooler class anywhere else. So yeah, ni- it's your loss. Ninety bucks for some graduate credits—not so bad. No, it's pretty good, even. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, one more update. So important. Really got to tie this one up here. Uh, last week we kind of talked about and endorsed using the app Church Home. Um, and we told you about all the weird, good Christian left stuff going on there. And after we recorded that episode, um, some good and interesting things continued to happen. I think um, we were up to almost 200 people using the app and on the Christian leftist sort of like subgroup. We were making prayer requests. We were praying for people. We were talking and just kind of like 
just having a good time. And then repression happened. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Dean, I don't know if you experienced this, but I was, um, my ability to uh, register prayer requests on that website was taken away. (laughs) (laughs) The iron hammer of the megachurch finally came down and removed your ability to pray. It's pretty wild. Yeah, no kidding. Like the white army of Christians came and said, no, uh, your your socialist prayers are not good here. And they said, please do not do it. (laughs) It's pretty funny how all that happened. Um, Connor, uh, all all power to Connor, uh, the Marxist Jesus on Twitter. Chairman Connor. Chairman Connor, that's right, really uh, leading leading the people's army um, on the Churchill map and uh, praying the people's prayers, trying to organize and coordinate everyone. Actually, pretty <laughs> he was like pretty dedicated to working all that stuff out. Spent a lot of time trying to get people, um, you know, like having really cool conversation spaces and um, really like inviting people to to share. And that was a very cool thing. Um, but rip Churchill, I don't know. Uh, once you were cool, well, once you were like kind of okay because we were there once you you Uh, were a fun joke and now you're not anymore (laughs) (laughs) once you were a fun joke that like surprisingly turned into something like actually kind of meaningful and then now you're just kind of a fun now you're not fun joke yeah exactly it was it's interesting because it was it was totally a joke for a minute right we were all on there you know doing doing some fun jokey things but then it got real and people were actually giving real prayer requests and like we were kind of like talking and it was cool um yeah. Isn't it wild, though, that, like, there are Christians in the world who would rather just exclude leftists from their community than just, like, let them pray and stuff? <laughs> it's super wild. Yeah. Uh, it's especially wild that the prayer requests of things like, hey, maybe we shouldn't have white supremacy or shouldn't have capitalism are prayers that are suspicious. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's bad. It's bad news. Church home, you should feel bad about this. Uh, leftist Christians out there, we all moved to a Slack channel so that we could pray together and talk together. Um, and that's cool, too. Um, again, thank you, um, Connor, for setting all that up because it probably was a lot of work. Probably. <laughs> probably. Well, uh, let's get into the meat of this episode here. Wait, wait, wait. So I, have, I have one more joke. Done a couple of... that church home was kind oh, of, yeah, yeah, okay. it was just kind of like our commune, you know? And it just got pushed right over. <laughs> <laughs> church commune this is the new app church it's gonna hit your your web oh my gosh. real soon if someone made church commune app that'd be so good it can't be that hard how do you make an app i mean i think that you just you fill out the app and then it's made yeah that sounds about right all right we gotta we gotta go we gotta get out of here um <laughs> <laughs> we gotta get into this episode uh so if you haven't heard us talk about violence, you probably haven't listened to this podcast for very long, and that's fine. Welcome. We're glad to have you. But if you've been listening for a while, uh, you'll know that we did a couple of episodes about violence in the past um, already, and it is like a perennial topic that sort of comes and goes. Uh, so we figured, like, instead of trying to situate violence in a ton of other conversations like we've been doing, we would just confront it head on, do an episode about it, kind of decontextualized, thinking about what it is, what it's about, how to how Christians could think about it. And uh, we're going to try our best to go at this uh, in a way that is responsible, intelligent, true, loving, sweet, and uh, ultimately in a way that builds up uh, the church commune. Yeah. um, I think to me, this is such like an intimate issue for my life because what actually got me into sort of like the Christian leftist scene was thinking about these questions of violence and pacifism so um, tackling this question and kind of like really parsing out like what violence even is sort of like at a 
I don't want to say philosophical level, but at a level that's grander than just like kind of looking at a situation and saying it's violent. It's just like, it's just important to me. It's like, it's like kind of how I got where I am right now in this conversation. So this, uh, the discourse surrounding violence and Christianity is, uh, I don't know, means a lot. Yeah, same here. I had the same exact situation. Uh, I think a lot of people who especially come in through the anarchist door to Christian leftism also end up kind of coming in through the nonviolence door. Um, and there's a lot of really good things about coming into it that way. I think there's a lot of good lessons to be learned through it. Um, but a lot more to consider within the context of all that conversation, too. Um, so one big problem with violence, I think, is just getting clear about our actual terms. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about violence? Or to put it another way, what are we trying not to talk about when we talk about violence or nonviolence? Um, Pope Francis had an address last year that I think illustrates this pretty well. So he talked about nonviolence as what he calls a style of politics for peace. And he has a lot of good points, but he never actually tells us what violence or nonviolence are. We're left to figure it out or fill in the blanks of what we think that violence is or isn't. Um, I think there's like a lot of really good stuff that comes out of nonviolent activism for sure. Uh, but what would it mean to like really investigate violence from a Christian perspective? I think that's something that we don't often um, jump into intuitively. So there's a ton of stuff out there. We can obviously only scratch the surface here, but maybe we could start with this quote from Juan Luis Segundo. He was a Jesuit liberation theologian from Uruguay, and uh, this is from his book, The Liberation of Theology. So he says in a conversation on violence there, any phenomenological study of violence and its relationship to love must begin by discarding the terrible superficiality that surrounds many analyses of this issue. So we can just do that. <laughs> Try not to be superficial here. Um, not be superficial about violence or nonviolence and try to treat them um, in their fullness. Um, but before we go any further, um, let's take another quick quote from Segundo. It's uh, another good quote. That will help us get into some of the problems about this definition even more. Um, so Segundo carries on and says, Will the term violence apply to a firearm, a stick, a punch, an insult, a prejudice, a pervasive social structure? Without suggesting that there is any hypocrisy at work here, I do think that it is sociologically significant that all the talk about violence comes in the connection with the subject of revolution, but not in connection with such subjects as the police or the army, for example. And even if we were to find Christian groups inclined to fight equally against armed revolution and an armed government, we would still face the task of correcting a dreadfully superficial definition of what constitute quote, arms. It is quite clear that conscious and unconscious mental tendencies can constitute a weapon more effective in killing millions of people than any weapon that is traditionally viewed as an armament. So why focus the whole problem of violence around the picture of a person bearing arms? It's like, good question. Why? <laughs> um, yeah. Why? <laughs> this is, I think a really cool way to put it um, that, um, Right. This this is actually the type of sort of calculus that I think um, I I know that I am guilty of having done at one time. Like what counts as actually violence, firearms, sticks, a punch, an insult. Yep, yep, yep. All those things are violent and we should not do them all. And we should all be just really good pacifists. And I would have even have gone as far to say that, like, that's why we should sort of like be anarchists even. Um, and that's cool. Um, but I think that the larger question still remains. Um, it is quite clear. Uh, as Segundo says, that conscious and unconscious mental tendencies can constitute a weapon more effective in killing millions of people 
than any weapon that is traditionally viewed as an armament, meaning that ideology is indeed a hell of a drug, and it is a thing that has been used to justify people for a long time. Yeah, for sure. I think, too, that question of what is bearing arms or what is violence, those are the kinds of questions that started moving me in a direction that was a little more nuanced on the question of violence after being a really hardline pacifist. I think for a long time, I just took it for granted that violence was an obvious thing, you know, to people are hurting each other or like one person is hurting someone else. And that's what violence is, I guess. Uh, Or there's an instrument specifically being used in a quote, violent way. That's an arm, you know, that that constitutes arms. Um, But the more I've thought about it, the more it seems way more complicated to me. And those kinds of critical questions, it's like once you start asking them, it's really hard to see the bottom. Uh, Like once you start sort of climbing down that ladder into investigating it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it's just a good way of framing the conversation of being like, at what point would you draw the line and say, this is violent and it's violent in such a way that you could be nonviolent. Like you could negate that violence Mm -hmm. as a pattern in in your life. This isn't like a fleshed out theory or anything, but to me, it always seems more helpful to think about violence rather than like sort of categories, just like intensities in a sense that like. You know, we can say that some things, I mean, violence is a relationship of bodies. I guess that is, I guess, a pretty theoretical thing. But like um, the intensity of that relationship between those bodies is kind of what we have to start figuring out. Like we can compare things that are violent and kind of figure out like to what extent are they violent and in like what context are they violent? Um, I, I guess just like finding that nuance in the categorization of violence ends up being a hard conversation, but one that we probably still need to figure out. Yeah, for sure. And maybe to kind of muddy the waters a little bit more, too, um, when we think about violence as a term that we use in everyday life, violence comes up in all kinds of weird, like very weird situations that cause us to think, I think, a little bit harder about what it means. So, for example, um, whatever, somebody harming another person is clearly violent, we would say, in one way or another. But we also talk about a, a volcanic eruption being violent or someone playing a sport in a violent way. Uh, But it's not necessarily bad. I mean, if somebody is sort of, um, you know, violently, I don't know, driving a lane in basketball or something, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, It doesn't have to be a bad thing. Uh, And there's all kinds of ways of maybe choosing different words like the use of force or uh, a power or something like that to describe something like a volcano. But I think it's important to realize that violence is a term that is multi- dimensional in our everyday use and it also makes it more and more complicated to think both about violence and nonviolence. uh well let's talk about like why people feel weird about it um this might sound like a dumb thing <laughs> to just open up a question with but I, it makes obvious sense like people are repelled by suffering right and and all the bad things that inevitably come even with violence that we might say is justified like even if you thought that there was a kind of violence that could be defended or could be reasonable. Nevertheless, there are very bad things that come along with that justified violence. I think nobody would really deny that. Um, And also, like, violence, I think, though, means that some things change. And that's really terrifying, especially for people like us uh, or other people who have, like, a lot of privilege to lose. So I think those are at least two kind of big reasons that people feel understandably kind of weird about conversations around violence. On the one hand, people don't want to see an increase in bad things or suffering in the world, and violence does bring those things. And secondly, like, people don't really want to um, 
engage in a, uh, a dialogue that might also bring up a host of other problems. I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Uh, why do you think people sort of feel weird about violence or why did you at one point? Yeah. What you said that like people are repelled by suffering, I think is on the right track. I would even go as far to say though, that like people are repelled by suffering. That's true. Um, we, but we find ways to make sense of that suffering in the world. As long as we can find ways to make sure that we aren't culpable for that suffering, like that's kind of the important piece. <laughs> like, uh, you know, suffering yeah. is bad, but we can kind of like justify it or kind of understand it um, in one way or another. Um, but uh, if we are somehow responsible for that suffering, we feel especially bad. So like when we extend the conversation of violence um, from just like individuals attacking one another to like sort of structures um, that um, do violence to, ind- to other people, um, we start feeling weird about violence and different about violence because like we might actually be responsible for some of it. And uh, that's a feeling right. that people especially don't like. Yeah, I, I don't like it either. <laughs> yeah, I hate it. I hate it but, 100%. Uh, yeah. but that's why I'm a communist. So yeah. I guess that kind of does, you know, that does the um, the work of like making me feel less culpable for it, even though I still am. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, that is a whole thing that I'm, is going to keep me up later tonight. Uh, yeah, but I think that like <laughs> you should be. Uh, I mean, apology accepted, but like you should be. Um, <laughs> I think uh, one of the main things of just bringing this up is like, why do people feel weird about it is to say, or I guess to highlight from the outset that I don't think people are dumb for not liking violence. (laughs) I think that's actually a very, very good impulse and it's a really challenging impulse. I mean, any person who has tried to be a pacifist or tried to live a nonviolent life for a long time will tell you that it's extremely difficult. It takes an immense amount of creative thinking. It takes an immense amount of, of courage uh and it takes a lot of um i think really principled action to live a kind of nonviolent or or peaceful life that you feel you know you're doing a good job at it or something yeah, absolutely. i think most pacifists probably don't even feel that way right it's sort of haunted by the guilt of it um and I, I yeah i guess the the point is i just don't want to i don't want to get into a conversation that opens up a nuanced idea about violence in such a way that it says like if you don't think that violence is something complicated, then like, I don't know, you're, you're a big dummy. That's not true. (laughs) I think that pacifists are people who know, like they, they are people who know something about violence, but I think that maybe like sometimes their assessment of it is something I would just disagree with. I mean, I don't know. I I think about the, the Catholic workers who we always reference who sabotage the, the uh, Dakota access pipeline and then like fessed up to it. Like, they're people that understand right. violence, I think, pretty well. And they understand, like, what it means totally. to negotiate their lives in light of that violence. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes the conversation just needs more more room to, like, grow, I think. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's another thing to emphasize, too, is that there is obviously a, a complex variation within both conversations about violence and nonviolence that is important not to erase or not to reduce down to like, well, some people think it's complicated and other people don't. Cause that's, that's not what we want to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that everyone knows it's complicated, but our responses to it. And I think like what we're willing to put up with might be different. Right. Well, that's a really good segue. I think into talking about why Christians in particular have a really vested interest in this conversation or why it becomes a a really unique kind of problem for Christians. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, we both mentioned 
you know, the two of us had that same sort of origin in thinking about uh, nonviolence and pacifism, you know, like it was um, a direct result of certain Christian commitments, first of all, rather than like political or tactical commitments, at least in my case, that's the truth. Yeah, completely. Um, it was yeah my, my my sort of like entryway into leftist politics like through pacifism were that like um jesus said that you shouldn't like you know hurt anybody you shouldn't do violence um you should turn the other cheek etc and like i thought that that was like um that that was a, a moral commandment that i don't think i thought of in the way that i think of it now um and so i thought like um resisting violence meant resisting the government and like resisting um like the state and stuff like that too so um i think right. that uh, there are a lot of Christian hangups about violence, whether they are like more radical or if they are just kind of like liberal. But um, there's a lot of Christian thoughts about violence. So I had mentioned like that um, my way into sort of leftist politics were these thoughts about violence. And you can find these types of ideas about Christian pacifism like in a lot of different places. But the place I found it first was in Leo Tolstoy's book, The Kingdom of Gods Within You. Um, and, uh, he talks a lot about the gospels and he does kind of some interesting meditations on the Sermon on the Mount, but, um, ultimately what he kind of gets to in the end is a type of like Christian anarchism that's based on pacifism. And it's a really similar argument. I think that we would make with like, um, Jacques Ellul or somebody, but Leo Tolstoy is just like a little bit cooler. Um, and doesn't talk about like cows <laughs> as much as Jacques Ellul. Um, oof, that's a, that's a good inside joke. Um, <laughs> a deep cut. Only people that listen to episode one will get that. Um, don't, Yikes. though. Don't be one of those it's people. <laughs> not, it's not worth it. Anyways, Leo Tolstoy has this take on violence that's like this. Um, and this is the one that I think I would definitely have ascribed to uh, when I was an undergrad. He says that government is violence. Christianity is meekness. Non-resistance, love, and therefore government cannot be Christian. And a man who wishes to be Christian must not serve the government. Whew, it's some good stuff, honestly. <laughs> I like it. Um I like it because, uh, I mean, I guess because I like sort of like that transgressive feel in it for sure. But uh, that's Leo Tolstoy on like sort of the importance of um, uh, of like uh, not only pacifism, not only rejecting violence, but also rejecting the government in turn. And that's kind of like, you know, the basis for a lot of Christian anarchism. Um, so that's that's totally a hang up that sort of Christians on the left have about violence. And I think it's not, you know, not a bad hang up. Um, it's a good one even, but I think it needs some more exploration. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and it, I mean, it's good rhetoric to be like, Christians are so meek that they don't like the government. Uh, that's a really nice like juxtaposition. Yeah, that I would just ask Leo Tolstoy, like, which Christians are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> most of them aren't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, most pe- most Christians who are upset about the government are not uh, Quakers in the same way that uh, Tolstoy was trying to think about. Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> Yeah, he, he he has a lot of things to say, too, about, like, more, like, imperialistic Christians that do serve the government. But um, still, it's kind of like a kind of like a wishful thinking. Yeah, I mean, the other person who comes to mind here, obviously, is Jacques Ellul, who you just just mentioned. Um, and even though he I think Tolstoy does have a little bit more going for him. Uh, so even though he's not quite as cool as Tolstoy, he does kind of put the terms um in a way that crystallizes the issue i think for a lot of like 20th century and now 21st century christian pacifists um so he writes the christian nationalists of the 19th century also killed each other in the conviction that jesus had established nations and that love of country was part of love of god we find that stupid nowadays well i don't know (laughs) some of us uh but can yeah (laughs) 
But can we be sure that 50 years hence, today's pro-revolutionary position will not also seem stupid? Fair. Uh, what troubles me is not that the opinions of Christians change, nor that their opinions are shaped by the problems of the times. On the contrary, that's good. What troubles me is that Christians conform to the trend of the moment without introducing into it anything specifically Christian. Their convictions are determined by their social milieu, not by faith in revelation. They lack the uniqueness which ought to be the expression of that faith. Thus, theologies become mechanical exercises that justify the positions adopted and justify them on the grounds that are absolutely not Christian. Um, so that's from an essay, Violence, Reflections from a Christian Perspective. I think you can see a really obvious um, Protestant, especially, kind of flavor coming out here in Elul. I mean, there's a real obsession with kind of being faithful to a specific revelation, but obviously it's not um, it's not unique to Protestants by any stretch. Uh, but I think that's like a, it's a gauntlet that is worth uh, wrestling with, um, you know, like, he's not completely wrong that a lot of Christians do just sort of baptize whatever ideas seem right to them without actually analyzing them. And if you did try to interrogate your political ideas by coming at them from the perspective that maybe you're a Christian, you would probably find they don't fit very well all the time. Um, I think, though, that my biggest problem with Elul is that that is a problem for pretty much everyone. Um, like, it isn't the case that pacifists have a really easy time um, just being pacifists and being Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, there are there are plenty of whatever biblical passages or exegeses, etc., that they also have to explain away or wrestle through. And I think that the like it's completely fair to say that we should think politically as Christians or something like that. Um, but it's also not a cop out to say that. And I think oftentimes a and many other Christian pacifists do sort of take that as an assumed cop out. Yeah. And um, maybe to go back and uh, take back of somewhat, some of what I said about Leo Tolstoy too. Uh, uh, Tolstoy does the same thing in kingdom of gods within you. Um, he kind of just right. like, he he reads the Sermon on the Mount and is just like I don't know it's so obvious like you read this like how can you <laughs> how can you disagree that pacifism is sort of like a necessary Christian pass uh, uh, practice and um, right what Jacques Ellul what Leo Tolstoy what I mean like I guess like probably what most people don't realize is that uh, these types of Christianity or these readings of Christianity are definitely a hermeneutic project that like you have to build yeah. this way of sort of understanding the Bible. It doesn't mean that they're like bad or wrong. It's just that like, you got to, you got to recognize that they're not obvious. Um, or, right. They're constructions yeah, the, in the same way that Christians who believe in violence are constructing something. Yeah. Leo Tolstoy's book though is so funny because he'll just like read a bit of the Sermon on the Mount and then he'd be like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> How do people not get this? <laughs> it's like, come on, man. <laughs> you, you know how. <laughs> you like write books. You get it. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's just like, yeah, they're, they're projects though. And, uh, they have to be constructed and they have to be sort of be like, you know, argued to people persuasively. Right. Okay. All of this being said, uh, contextualizing Alul and Tolstoy as people who ha are participating in hermeneutic projects, whatever, that's fine. Um, all that to say though, uh, I, I still do find them like, they're really important thinkers for my life because, um, I think probably a lot of people listening to this can empathize or sympathize or whatever. But, um, growing up in a church in the United States, um, means like really like having this type of Christian nationalism and like a Christian, like praise of violence, definitely in your face. Um, I, I think about like all the times I've gone to church on 4th of July or whatever. And, the, and we've had like freedom Sunday 
or <laughs> Freedom <laughs> Sunday sounds like an ice cream treat, but it was actually like a, a, so a nationalistic celebration in church. Um, or, you know, like you have sort of like Veterans Day things at churches um, where um, sort of like the American mythology of just violence is really praised and associated with a, a Christian uh, type of justice or something. Alul and Tolstoy both like leave something to be desired in this conversation about violence, but at the same time, they were really good people for me to help me really like kind of question those things that like uh, my church told me or that I just kind of knew from the Christian milieu. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And uh, that Alul quote, quote we were just talking about, um, I think is really powerful in that way. I mean, it was a powerful rhetoric for me to basically be like, oh, yeah, wait a second. I am a Christian, which means I should probably think twice about what's on TV or what my pastor says from the pulpit or something. Um, that kind of agency or permission that sometimes a certain kind of Christian rhetoric that has to do with like taking ownership of your faith can give you, um, that can be important. It can also be really dangerous, I think, and it can like forestall you from asking some critical questions. Yeah. But uh, for sure, like it is a, it, it can be used very effectively, no doubt about that. Yeah, just, I mean, it's something that's, Something that I think American Christians need to hear. Um, right. Like, if I could go to to the next Freedom Sunday and, like, in the midst of uh, a praise band playing I'm Proud to Be an American, just hand out sort of copies of Jacques as uh, and Violence, I would. <laughs> and I wouldn't feel bad about it. It'd be good. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, let's turn a hinge here a little bit and maybe bring in some class struggle and some Christianity by talking about our favorite um, Dominican, Herbert McCabe. Uh, Herb McCurb, <laughs> as we decided to talk to him, talk about him earlier. <laughs> so this comes from uh, one of the best essays ever called Class Struggle and Christian Love, um, where McCabe writes, this is kind of a long quote, but I think it's worth kind of reading in full because he pulls out a ton of issues that I think help maybe present like a counterpoint to certain uh, anarchist and pacifist uh, strands within Christianity. Um, so McCabe writes, first of all, let us eliminate some fairly simple confusions. Nice. <laughs> One of them arises out of the word struggle itself and a lot of other words that get themselves used in this context. Exhortations to smash the bourgeois state or for increased militancy are all violent uses of language. So that argument about the class struggle gets mixed up with an argument about violence. People committed to the class struggle are thought to be people especially addicted to trying to solve political and economic problems by violence. Now, this is a muddle. There is a Christian argument against the use of violence, and there is another Christian argument about participating in the class struggle. Both of these arguments are, I think, mistaken, but they are different arguments because the class struggle and political violence are by no means the same thing. Huh. It is perfectly possible to believe passionately in the importance of the class struggle and to renounce all political violence. It would be perfectly possible for a Christian to hold that the gospel prevents them from ever killing anyone, but positively encourages them to subvert and overthrow the ruling class. Further than that, a Christian or a non-Christian might well say that political violence is not only different from class struggle, but is actually opposed to it. So I think that it's really helpful that McCabe is trying to, like, do that work that Segundo talked about earlier of coming at the question of violence in a way that is 
not superficial, but like really getting into the details of it, thinking hypothetically about different positions that one might have as a Christian, specifically as a Christian, about violence, uh, and also trying to uncouple those things from other kinds of questions about things like class struggle or societal violence or however you want to cash that out. Um, I think it's just a really like important way of framing the whole conversation. Yeah, I think the end the end of this quote is uh, maybe the most powerful for me. Um, a Christian or non-Christian might as well say that political violence is not only different from the class struggle, but is actually opposed to it. Um, I think that's kind of what I meant earlier when I was saying that um, when we talk about violence, uh, we ought to think about it in terms of intensity or like different sort of genre right. or something like that. But um you know, cl- class struggle is violent, but maybe not politically violent in the way that like repression is or politically violent in the way that imperialism is. Right. Um, just helps us think through it in a different yeah, way. Totally. And to, I'm going to pull out another quote from this essay just cause it's very, very good. Yeah. Um, so, uh, kind of extending that same point, uh, McCabe says, um, how could revolutionary violence be compatible with the sermon on the Mount? Well, first of all, in this matter, we should not lose our sense of humor. There's something especially ludicrous about Christian church people coming around to the belief that violence is wrong. There's probably no sound on earth so bizarre as the noise of clergymen bleeding about terrorism and revolutionary violence while their cathedrals are stuffed with regimental flags and monuments to colonial wars. The Christian church, with minor exceptions, has been solidly on the side of violence for centuries, but normally it has only been the violence of soldiers and policemen. It's only when the poor catch on to violence that it suddenly turns out to be against the Bible or against the gospel. So I just think like that's also a really important feature of this whole conversation, like to find out who gets to talk about violence and whose violence is not justifiable. Yeah, I think that's also what I meant too by culpability earlier too. That like, right? Um, you know, there's a certain type of just violence that sort of keep people safe or something like that, or preserve social order. Um, and that type of violence is is worth it because we don't find ourselves you know culpable in it or something, or we don't see how we might because right. other people are actually doing it. Um. So uh, the the sort of like state sponsored violence of police oppression or imperialistic kind of uh, invasion or force or whatever, um, those are types of violence that sit well with Christians because they're like, you know, pretty well removed from it. Or there's like a mythos surrounding it where it seems very just that it's a type of violence that um, they're not responsible for and is also like sort of good in the way that it uh, keeps a, a certain type of peace. Right. And to the credit of radical pacifists, they totally recognize this, yeah. right? That, like, yeah, police are violent, and we should oppose the police as a result of that. Um, so no no shade on that by any means. But I think that there is a certain allergy to violence and a valorization of nonviolence that comes especially through, especially, like, uh, uh, liberal societies and liberal people in particular, um, where it's like violence is bad because I don't really want to see it. That's kind of what it boils down to. I yeah. Think. Yeah. That's sort of like an idealistic view of violence. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, Matt, would you say it's fair to say that we think you should have a nuanced opinion about violence that recognizes that violence is complicated and maybe sometimes potentially even necessary or good? Uh, yeah. I think it's all complicated. <laughs> I think it's all very, all right. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking uh, of all the th- I ask you that. Sorry, man. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, violence is bad. I don't want to do it, but also I understand like sort of like the nuance of it that um that like you know it's hard to be it's hard to to be like a communist and not think that like well at least some violence is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me back up to you and say okay, violence is not good. Not going to say that. 
but complicated and potentially okay. <laughs> Maybe I'd, I'd walk it back that way. Pot- potentially um, okay. And also, I guess, man, sorry, there's just, there's so much nuance. It's hard to make us like a sort of blanket statement that I'll just like just agree with. Yeah. Um, okay. Violence is bad. I don't want to participate in it. But at the same time, I have to every day. Like, <laughs> Right, in that, right, right. In that exactly. sense, like where uh, I think that we have to recognize our complicity in in a certain type of violence, like whether it's um, you know the violence of like wage labor or the violence of white supremacy that like I definitely benefit from because I'm a white person. Like I just like you know I'm not okay with it, and I think that it sucks. And I wish that I right. could be a complete and total pacifist or something, but I realize that uh, the only way to live my life is sort of like you know made possible because I'm complicit in violent systems. Right. Um. No, I think it's a good a good way to frame it for sure. Uh, I think some of the real sticky stuff comes in when you start talking about how to oppose that kind of violence yeah. with other kinds of violence or violence in the service of something else. And I think, okay, so, I mean, let's put our cards on the table. Like, I think that sometimes violence is not something to be desired, but something that is nevertheless necessary because in certain conditions or situations. Um, and historically has accomplished good things has accomplished like violence has contributed to qualitatively better forms of life. Um, having gone through that sort of apocalypse of violence than the form of life that preceded it. Um, I would agree. Yes, but I, okay, good. Uh, (laughs) uh, I think there's a lot more to be said about violence than people like want to say. Um, but at the same time, I also think that there is a weird sort of bloodlust that sometimes happens on the left. And I think that's especially strange in places like the United States. So if you look at like speeches and diaries from revolutionaries like Mao or Fidel or Lenin or a number of other people, you can find a lot of really interesting reflections on how they wish that they didn't have to go to war or didn't have to be in a violent situation. Um, but the the kinds of... Uh, unjust societies that they live in compel them to those violent or uh, warlike responses. And obviously you can find a lot of quotes glorifying war and violence in those same authors as well. But I think even still, it's often only insofar as it's related to a real people struggle, which makes all the difference. Um, And I think like sometimes I just get uncomfortable with how certain lefties talk about violence, uh, like constantly calling for the heads of the rich or, uh, posting guillotine, mean, guillotine memes like really flippantly or whatever um, I mean I get it like you shouldn't be concerned about like the bourgeois feelings of I don't know whatever uh, rich people or liberals like that's okay sure but also <laughs> like violence is a weird rhetoric that really turns people away for no actually good reason and I think it's important to recognize that violence is always for both Christians and people on the left uh, should always be a um, a thing that you would prefer not to have to do like you do it because you finally feel that there's no other way and I think that's just a sentiment that kind of gets lost actually in some conversations about violence yeah I think so and for people on the left I think that that kind of feeling is actually just being a good materialist. Like there's nothing in Marx that prescribes a violent revolution other than like, you know, if the material conditions call for that type of struggle, then like guess that's like what you do. The, the sort of like wanting for violence is not inherent. And in, I guess in leftist struggle, it just is uh, it's there. If the bourgeoisie make it there, you know, it's like, um, right. If those are the conditions that have been produced and the bourgeoisie are going to fight you for it, then I guess like you have to. Um, yeah. But it's not like good. Right. 
Wouldn't it be better if, like, we could just have a revolution without violence? Like, yes, everyone would agree, <laughs> but that's usually not the case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the other piece, is that uh, we should want a revolution that doesn't have to be violent. Um, but we shouldn't sort of assume that that means that all revolutions are unjust or that all the violence used in them are somehow, like, uh, a priori moral- morally indefensible or something. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think that we can even see some of that, like... I, you know um like that negotiation of like violence isn't actually what we want in in some of these like revolutionary figures like fidel is one of them too like um if you kind of read about the cuban revolution like after the revolution was basically won fidel like didn't say like yeah go and like just kill all of the sort of like a batista forces that are still here he was just right. like you know capture them and like whatever but he wasn't like you know going out of his way to be especially cruel or especially violent or something. He was a person that obviously wanted to like unite an entire country now that he had it. So I don't know. You can see examples elsewhere how people negotiate violence. Yeah, and I think you could do a pretty interesting kind of biblical or theological study of that ambiguity about violence. I mean, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar, so I don't pretend to be one. But I just always think of passages like uh, or stories, I guess, where you know like david he like goes to war and then he wants to build a temple to god and god's like "Mm, i don't know you're like a little too covered in blood to do that i think uh but god doesn't really tell him like not to go to war (laughs) he just tells him that that war has sort of dirtied him in a certain way um and i think that like those kinds of perspectives are probably more interesting in the bible than people even uh recognize right off the bat that like there is a, a fundamental ambiguity about violence throughout the entire Christian tradition. And what that means is we have to be honest about the uh, like the badness of violence and the sort of, I don't know if necessity is the right word, but like uh, the moments when violence is kind of demanded in a situation or something like that. Yeah, where either you have to like sort of choose violence or just choose like more violence. Right. I mean, like, or like the perpetuation of violence or something. Right. Exactly. I mean, like, that's what's that case in most like sort of pre-revolutionary situations. It's like you could either fight back or I don't know, let everyone suffer more. Right. Um. Well, m- maybe we should sort of talk about this from another angle too, about peace. I think because peace and war, or like peace and violence, are things that are often juxtaposed. And, like, it makes sense that they are, right? Uh, we want to live in a peaceful society, not a violent or warring society. Um, but what does it mean to actually, like, talk about that? I think that's another sort of rhetorical, uh, like, <laughs> a big mud trap that we can get stuck in for a minute. Um, I don't know, Matt, any, any hot takes about peace? Yeah, I think that Christians have a lot to say about peace. Or, like, we have a lot of sort of, like, rich biblical metaphor to think about peace with, at least. Um I mean, like Jesus is, you know, the Prince of Peace. That's like a, that's a, the language we use to talk about Jesus, or like I don't know. I always think about, I always think about sort of like the, um, I think it's like an Isaiah where it's like the wolf will lie down with the lamb, that whole kind of thing. Or it happens in Revelation mm-hmm. too. Um, but that's the uh, there's like a, a a picture of biblical peace where like um, like fighting stops, and that there is sort of like a, um, you know. A togetherness uh christians like to talk about that and like think about those types of images and uh john mcnaughton's got a few of them uh pictures <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure he's got like sort of a line in the lamb sort of picture out there on his website um so christians like to think about peace because the bible kind of gives us a glimpse of it every now and again uh but we don't have a lot of thoughts about like what peace takes to like maintain or 
or make or keep just that like you know what it looks like um so peace is a an idea that i think has you know some deep biblical metaphor and the christians i won't say about it but like i don't think we really know what it is yeah i think that's right and to also remember that um i mean there's something to be said about christian prefigurative eschatological politics that i think is challenging and cool um but at the same time like we still don't live there yet um and that's just kind of the 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 difficult in-between time that we're forced into yeah um so talking about peace always makes me think of um my dude richard gil Napolsky, and this thing that he says in his recent book specters of revolt and it's kind of like a depressing thought but it's true so i guess we should all, all truths god's truth you gotta figure it out <laughs> um so richard gil Napolsky says this the present war is never the last war the war to end all wars has never happened whenever there has not been a war or when one is taking place, a future war remains somewhere on the horizon. Thus, times of peace cannot be called post-bellum, because there is no after-war. There's only before-war. It's always antebellum. Hoof. <laughs> Yikes. I guess, like, um, this quote is important to me because it uh, recognizes um, it recognizes wars within, like, sort of the historical... Uh, deep time that there's always been a war or there always is a war there always will be a like, coming war um and that is an idea they think is antithetical to christianity because like i don't know we have we you know we are a group of people with an eschatology that um proclaims sort of like a time of peace but until whatever that is happens uh, i think that um we are always living in this antebellum period we're always um before the war uh yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's also interesting because you could think of the Christian eschaton as a postbellum, the only kind of postbellum. Yeah. Um, which really changes the way that you think about the kind of victory that God wins or something in history, I think, by, by being truly postbellum. I like that. Yeah, it has, there's like a Paul Virilio feel to the postbellum as well. Like, um, you know, only after the one big explosion is there a postbellum or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, let me, uh, so you got your boy, Richard Gilman-Opolsky. Let me read, uh, something from another boy, another one of our boys, the other, uh, Vladimir Lenin. Somewhere else in that, uh, that political compass quadrant. <laughs> uh, so Lenin has a really interesting little essay, uh, called The Question of Peace. And there's a lot in it that is worth looking at, but I wanted to pull out just this one little quote. He says, an end to wars, peace among the nations, the cessation of pillaging and violence, such is our ideal. But only bourgeois sophists can seduce the masses with this ideal if the latter is divorced from a direct and immediate call for revolutionary action. I think that is really important and maybe kind of the whole driving force behind what I'm getting at. That uh, like an end to war, peace, uh, maybe even stopping something like violence, all that kind of stuff is is good to have as an ideal, but only insofar as it's tied to like a full revolutionary um, situation. <laughs> I don't want to like... I don't know exactly how to spell that out if you're a pacifist, uh, but for Lenin, it obviously meant like having a, a civil war and like winning it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, like the Soviet Union did not end up uh, becoming an end to war or peace among the nations by any stretch. Uh, but I think that like even then, war is still contextualized in a larger project to end war. 
Whereas in a place like the United States, like war is contextualized in a larger project to actually continue to police the borders of capitalism, uh, which is the preservation of, of a certain kind of class war. So I don't know, like, Maybe that's too easy. Maybe this is kind of my like Elul Christian version of just being like, yeah, well, I don't know. If you're a communist, that means that you're ultimately against war um, in a way that sort of cops me out of some more complicated questions. Uh, but I think that there's something to it. Like there's something to contextualizing um, a hope for peace within uh, a certain kind of discernible struggle, like a struggle for the end of things like a class war or, or white supremacy or what have you. Yeah, um, this is going to sound so dumb after just quoting some really smart people, but I don't care. I'm not a very smart person, so I'm just going to do it anyways. Uh, Over the last few months, I've been watching the show The Americans, which is a really great TV show, and I really love it. Um, So if you're out there and you're thinking, like, man, I need a show to watch, just check out The Americans. So generally, uh, the show is about these two um, Soviet spies who infiltrate the United States and, like, live these, like, relatively normal American lives while also having, like, these you know, double, double lives of secret communist agents. Um, but what I really find interesting about the show is the way the two main characters talk about sort of like why they are socialists. And like, they're still there. It's, it's funny. Cause like, they're like, you know, they're benefiting from all like the nice American amenities. Uh, but they're like, well, we're here kind of doing this like dirty work because we believe in like the project of peace in the world. So like, um, that's like the, that's the rhetoric that the, the, the writers for the show adopted. And like, you know, who knows hmm. if they had actually even read Lenin or something, but still, it's like it's a it's an inter- interesting way to put it. Like, you know, you are uh, in, in a real sense, like um, the Soviet Union, um, right, did not end war and probably exacerbated it in some uh, situations. Um, but at the same time, like uh, to fight against capitalism is to fight against war in a certain sense, because uh, capitalism is something that uh, perpetuates war and makes money off of it. Not to say that the Soviet Union probably didn't either, because there are some really good sort of post-colonial critiques that um, sure. can be made for sure but um still i think it kind of rings true to what you were saying dean yeah well that must be right <laughs> uh you gotta watch the americans though i do i never got around to it but maybe now i will uh, the, that hot insight their daughter uh in the americans joins a church group and <laughs> um and she like ends up going to protests with the like the pastor like they go and like uh, they're protesting like nuclear weapons in the show, huh, and that's cool. um, yeah, it's funny. But um, so like she goes and um, but the parents are just like, huh, she only knew the real truth about the world. Like get over <laughs> it, man. Like your your kid's going to protest something awesome. Just like find a good way to like talk to her about it. Uh, I mean, that's it's like really such funny. an easy inroad to making her a communist, and eventually they do. Spoiler alert! But anyways, <laughs> uh, it's great. It's a good show, and there's going to be a new season, and I'm going to watch it. Oh, me too. Maybe, oh, maybe I'll catch up. Get um, up. Then we it's can good. do we can do a spinoff. Um, the Magnificast watches the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be a great idea. There's actually there's so much sort of like Christian communist content in the show. Why not? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first. So maybe we could say that there's a dialectical relationship between nonviolence and violence um, or between those tactics or between them as worldviews or however we want to kind of think of them on a scale. But a lot of activists on the ground seem to recognize that relationship already. So you see it in some people involved with groups like Christian peacemaker teams, for example, who have a totally nonviolent role in conflict zones, but they don't use that role to 
like judge people engaging in violence in those conflict zones necessarily uh it's more like they've made a commitment and they use that uh to try to help the struggle for justice um, but they don't use that as a bludgeon against people who are being violent um and i think probably though the more important thing is like a uh historically how these two groups relate so i guess one book that's kind of becoming a classic on it even though it's pretty recent is um charles e cobb's book this Nonviolent stuff will get you killed uh, he tries to show like the intertwined history of violence and nonviolence in the black liberation movement in the U S in particular. So here's a, a couple of quotes that I think are kind of relevant here. So this is one just thing that he notes, um, as noted in 1964 by Robert P. Bob Moses, director of the Mississippi Project of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, it's not contradictory for a farmer to say he's nonviolent and also pledge to shoot a marauder's head off. That probably sounds pretty contradictory, <laughs> but Cobb like goes to pretty great lengths to show why it isn't. Um, especially if you're a black person in the U.S. when like the Klan is running around actually uh, trying to be marauders and trying to murder farmers. Um, so there's a lot more that goes into it, obviously, but he tries to spell out the way in which even the nonviolent civil rights movement and um, kind of big major players in it, like MLK or others, uh, they all are kind of built into an ongoing history of violent struggle in the U.S. And, like, they sort of need each other, or at least they play off of each other in important ways. And one thing that I thought was really fascinating is he also pulls out an interesting Christian dimension to all this. So he says this, uh, To be sure, in a significant portion of the Southern Black community, nonviolent resistance tapped deeply into a vein of righteousness that was rooted in Afro-Christian values, and provided moral guidance in a political struggle where hate and anger could easily blind and become overwhelming. But an idealized acceptance of the kind of redemptive love and suffering expressed in the New Testament is the closest black people have come to embracing the philosophy of nonviolence en masse. Black Christians, however, have also readily embraced the Old Testament with all its furies and violence. And I really think that's a fascinating piece of it, um, not just for understanding a specific historical community or historical time period, but for understanding, I guess, a, a kind of ambivalence within Christianity as a whole, um, that you have to wrestle through this. And uh, I mean, the way that um, Cobb sort of articulates all this historically is totally worth investigating, I think, um, just because this is a conversation that like makes material differences um and is like way more uh way more complicated historically even than it seems to be theoretically yeah i think so well i don't want to like cheapen the conversation by saying something like this and i probably i don't think it really does but it adds i guess another layer to it that sometimes like nonviolence is just a good book um right and i guess that doesn't really cheapen it because i mean you have to think about the ways that um struggle is sort of communicated across the um this like uh media saturated hellscape that is 2018 like um i mean you think about uh, I, like okay maybe he, here's an example like the last time we talked about violence on the podcast or maybe not the last time exactly but a time we did was when we talked about <laughs> uh cornell west and tracy blackman um sort of non-violently protesting in charlottesville and they right. they were there and it's like it's it's great like they're clergy people they're sort of like you know really important figures um you know social justice kind of figures in the united states um, so it's a good look for them to like be there and sort of being nonviolent at the same time, you know, the like anti-fascist protesters were there too, kind of protecting them from the fascists. So, um, you, you have like, kind of like both, both things, um, 
uh, on the one hand, you have like a good look just for like the the public, and then you also have people who are protecting that good look, which I think is an amazing tactic. There are all kinds of other types of like um, ways that nonviolence ends up just like looking good. Um, it it also like in the media, it can play as such like a moral high ground um, that even though sometimes when it's not, uh, it's just like it makes people like really feel for the people who are sort of protesting in that way. Totally. Um, uh, I don't know if you've, I, I've already referenced a TV show, but I'll reference a movie too. That's really great. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen it, Dean. It's called Hunger. It's a 2008 movie um, about um, the IRA and Bobby Sands uh, doing mm. like the dirty protest and then the hunger strike that they did in the prison. Have you seen mm. the movie? I have not seen it. Okay. Well, it's a great movie. Um, it's a hard movie to watch also um, because it's like mostly quiet and pretty uh, visceral, <laughs> a visceral film <laughs> with many bodies. Um, if you guys don't know about Bobby Sands and the IRA, you should check it out. Um, they're like these, uh, basically the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. They were um, a armed militant group uh, that were trying to sort of gain their independence from um, England. And uh, a bunch of them were arrested and put in jail. So when they were in prison, uh, they were being treated as regular prisoners rather than political prisoners. And to protest that, they... Um, they did two things that were two, two nonviolent forms of protest. Um, one uh, was called like the dirty protest and they just like didn't take showers and made the guards like not want to be near them, which is a pretty interesting tactic. Like if the guards are beating you um, become so smelly that they don't want to touch you. Um, <laughs> and the other, the other protest was that they just had a hunger strike where they like, you know, they, they held their own bodies captive um, until they got what they want. And Bobby Sands ended up dying because of it. Um, which is a real something. It's like really something to think about. I mean, like that's a real huge sacrifice for a movement. But um, anyways, the the hunger strikes and the dirty protests, um, they ended up being like a really important sort of moment for the IRA and the media because they showed a certain type of like moral high ground that the um, British government didn't have at the time. So hmm. um, it it worked in a sense that it was like protest as a type of public relations um, where people end up being on their side because of um, that type of media representation. Um, there's all kinds of times that doesn't play out very well either. Like, um, damn, all these all these ideas are just kind of coming to me now, and I feel stupid for not preparing more. <laughs> but, like, um, <laughs> there's a, a, pretty, a pretty famous hunger strike, too, in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba where the inmates were, like, you know, again, putting their bodies on the line because they are experiencing some extremely bad conditions and bad treatment. And... Um, the um, the United States press covered it like a little bit, but then Guantanamo Bay completely blocked the press out. Um, mm. And uh, I think to this day, there still are no sort of outside press allowed into the prison um, mm-hmm. because like if they covered something like that, it would, I think, make people feel a lot differently about Guantanamo Bay and like the prisoners right. that are there. So anyways, all that say that um, I think there's definitely like an ethical um, and moral claim to nonviolence that Christians should think about. And Christians definitely have thought about already. But there's also a real tactical element to it in the sense that like um, sometimes it's just like a really good idea. It's like a really courageous idea. I mean, a hunger strike is a terrible thing that I can't imagine doing to myself. But um, it's something that definitely um, works and uh, builds momentum for your movement. I think uh, that's a really good way of kind of articulating it that like these are um things that really work like strategies that actually can be extremely useful and effective there's no denying that um and i think i don't know i guess like 
what I would hope to see is more Christians who are open to the nuances of both of those things. And I think that's happening, like, in conversations that I've had and kind of discourses that I've watched. It seems that the, like, hardline ideological pacifism, especially, is kind of opening up in really interesting ways to uh, at least kind of recognizing that, like, the distance that's there between um, pacifist tactics and violence tactics isn't necessarily one of... uh, like moral superiority or judgment or anything like that but just one of like a distance in um specific tactics or something and i think that's probably a good horizon i think like like violence and nonviolence. i mean we opened this conversation talking about the problems of defining those terms um and obviously like throughout this whole thing we never defined them either and i think that's because <laughs> you actually can't like violence and nonviolence are rhetorical tools um they are like terms that create discourses and they allow certain things to be possible and other things to be not possible. Uh, like they allow some things to be said, other things to be not said, some things to be judged, other things to be like readily accepted. And I think that like when you can kind of pull some of that back, uh, it helps to understand maybe how you're wading into that rhetorical game yourself and how uh, certain material realities in the world are being either opened up or obscured by that rhetoric. Yeah, that reminds me, um, man, I'm just full of things that I'm being reminded of tonight. Um, <laughs> but uh, one time in my undergrad, there's this really weird thing that happened where um, the sociology professor at my university debated the philosophy professor at my university <laughs> um, about whether or not Christians should support just war theory or they should be pacifists. Huh. And, and at the end, they had this kind of nice moment. It was actually a really heated debate. Um, but uh, at the end, they had this nice moment where they were like, well... Um, even if you decide that you're just like a just war pass uh, a just war Christian and not like a pacifist Christian, I think that like what you can recognize is that you probably have more in common as a just war Christian with pacifists than you do with like sort of like uh, Christians who fully sort of engage in the like mi- militaristic worship of you know the United States sure. military or something. And I think there's something to say about the Christians on the left too, but like in a different way. Even if you're a Christian who believes in uh, you know that um, violence might be a material necessity. Um, and like because of class war or something or you're a christian who thinks that nonviolence is the only way to go i think that like um you know those two types of christians have a lot more in common than uh christians who are just you know like liberals or something yeah i think that's totally right Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, join our Facebook group called The Magnificast Basement. Um, there's lots of good stuff going on there for sure. Sign up for Dean's class for sure at icscanada.edu, or that's at least where you can get more information, I guess. Is that right, Please Dean? do it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I really want to run it, so I need people to sign up for it. Uh, thank you uh, to our sponsors, The Americans on FX. You can check that out on May 30th uh, when season six <laughs> starts. Uh, check out The Americans. Get ready for it. Uh, the Magnificast watches The Americans, which is a podcast that is definitely going to happen for sure. Um, thank you, uh, Amaria Armstrong, for the intro music. Thanks to Theological Spoon uh, for our outro music. And we'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.